Ahoy there, listeners. This be Davy of Jones's Locker. Ah, ha, ha. This be Danny Boy. And this be Ashes Ashes, a show about cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're lucky, a whole load of booty. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can turn this ship around. Um, um, uh, oh, oh, sorry. Sorry about that, <clears throat> David. I think I uh, swallowed a bug I, there for I was a minute. getting a little carried away, and we haven't even started yet. All right, let's do this. During the golden age of piracy, between 1650 and 1730, pirates could be said to represent one side of a dichotomy of terror between those who ruled and those who were ruled. On the one hand, you had the authorities who used terror to uphold a social order. These are the church, the clergymen, the monarchs, the wealthy, the colonial governors. The social order they enforced is one in which their position holds absolute power, in which property is protected, and in which the sailors who make up the backbone of the international trade system are kept in subservience to ship captains who employ their labor cheaply to keep profits flowing to the top of this social order. And terror they used. Officials who were hell-bent on eradicating piracy in the early 18th century organized mass hangings in towns and colonies all over the Atlantic trade system. In London, in New York, in Boston, in Rhode Island, South Carolina, and Virginia. Also the Bahamas, Jamaica, Salvador and Brazil, and in towns on the coast of Africa and off the coast of Portugal. And in an earlier episode, David, you mentioned the ways in which pirates were heralded as heroes by many people. And indeed, most of these mass hangings were reinforced by armed guards to prevent locals from rescuing pirates from the gallows. Officials often hanged pirates under the Jolly Rogers flag and paraded their corpses as a reminder to the people what would happen to them if they chose the pirate's life. Of course, an extension of this terror that was carried out was the merchant ship captain himself, who used the whip, various torture, and even murder to discipline sailors, all as necessary tactics for moving commodities along the conveyor belt of the Atlantic trade system. On the other hand, pirates used terror as well, but in the other direction, as resistance against the social order that various states of the world were enforcing. Some pirate crews, enraged by the news of mass hangings, retaliated with their own terror, as Blackbeard once did by burning Boston ships after one hanging, and as Bartholomew Roberts did by capturing the governors of Martinique, an island in the Caribbean, who had strung pirates up by the gallows. Roberts responded by hanging the governor from his own ship. But generally, pirates used terror directly against the international trade system, forcing merchant ships to surrender their booty and killing anyone who stood in their way by plundering the profits and property of the class rulers, making a mockery of the various laws of the land, and even in the way they subversively organized themselves as multiracial, multicultural, and a multinational egalitarian community, pirates could be said to represent a counterforce against an imperial system that sought to exploit them as sailors and exploit the various colonies through which wealth was extracted and accumulated. <laughs> so this show, David, is about pirates, if anyone... Uh... If, if you hadn't figured it out by now. This week isn't exactly our normal topic, but it's something fun to enjoy over the holidays and the New Year's, so we hope you'll enjoy it as much as we did while we were making it. Right. And specifically, we're talking about the early 18th century. Um, this was a time when the greatest accumulation of wealth perhaps the world has ever seen was taking place through colonization, 
extraction of natural resources from indigenous people using slave labor, and a transfer of that wealth along international trade routes to the metropolis was powered by underpaid and exploited sea labor. This was also a time of worldwide revolt and revolution, as around the world and especially in Western Europe, we saw upheaval as the forces of capital came together and for the very first time started exploiting their power over the worker on a scale that had never been seen before. This was a time of strikes at the Luddite Revolution that we've talked about before, the very beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and the beginnings of what we see as capitalism today. And sailors as the oppressed working class that enabled a lot of this transfer of wealth, of trade across the nations, of the exploitation of the new world, were at the very core of a lot of these revolutions and changes. And in that spirit, they carried a lot of these ideas of rebellion and the chance for something new, both in their very lives and onto the ships that they worked every day. Right. And I think that's very important to realize how the structures of the day encouraged piracy and that pirates came from a long tradition of this resistance. As we'll talk about later in the episode, some of the tools of labor disputes to this day came from the sailor class and those associated with this trade system. And the customs and the traditions, even the songs that many pirates carried with them through their communities came directly from people who were raised and grew up in this massive trade system, whether that's baymen on the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula or fishermen in Newfoundland or coal heavers in London. Pirates were perhaps the most memorable coming together of all of these cultures and clashes for this brief moment in history that spawned all these legends that we now look up to and romanticize through movies and film. But along with this romanticization comes misunderstanding at times where you know the perceptions we have of the pirate, of this greedy underclass that's just in it for the prophets or these vicious people who terrorized everyone around them. We see that in a way that's not exactly what the pirate life was all about, right, David? It's a pirate's life for me, Daniel. And why that's the case, we'll explore throughout the rest of this episode. But maybe we should start with a bit of a breakdown of exactly what conditions led to the explosion of piracy in this so-called golden age of piracy that you alluded to just a few minutes ago. This is by no means an exhaustive history of piracy, and there are very many periods of piracy throughout history. It, It continually comes up and goes down in waves and ebbs and flows around the world in different times and conditions. But the particular period that we're talking about, the one that we've remembered in our movies and our stories, is this Caribbean 1710 to 1726 or so period of piracy that is the golden age of piracy. And this this was brought on by a number of things, but one of which, and this is often always the case, is war. So at the time, the major colonial powers were battling among each other to see who would get the largest amount of spoils from the exploitation of the New World. And, and this was constantly ongoing between Spain, between England, between France, between Portugal. All these nations were constantly battling between each other. And this led to a large war, the War of Spanish Succession. And during this time, the English fleet was pumped up to a very large size. It had well over 30,000 sailors. And this is in addition to many privateers, which is basically a private pirate. What a nation would do is go and find a ship and would offer a bounty for attacking the ships of other nations. And while this was not an official military ship, it was sort of a license to kill or pillage or attack that one nation would grant to a ship to do to other nations and would fall into the protection of that nation and be paid for those actions. Well, after the war was completed and England found themselves without such a need for all these privateers, for all these sailors, 
they got rid of everybody. They drastically cut down the size of their navy. They no longer employed all these privateers. And that created a labor catastrophe in the sailing world. People were unemployed. And what was once a well-paying job that you could live comfortably off of was now something that tens of thousands of people were competing for for a very small number of actual ships, most of which were on merchant vessels. And the wages for sailors plummeted. And the conditions on the ships that sailors found themselves on were despicable. And as merchants realized, they didn't need to provide perks on these ships. They could do the bare minimum, just barely keep their sailors alive, and people were still falling over themselves to work on these ships because the other option was destitution. And so like you were saying, David, all these wars came to an end for the most part because these you know, world powers realized that although they could make money by stealing directly from each other, they could make more money by kind of marking their territory and having this kind of unspoken truce where, look, th- this is my territory, this is your territory, let's just extract our wealth and leave each other alone. And at that point, the privateers, who then turned pirate, became really enemies of all nations. And in fact, that's the name of one of the books that we read. For some of the information we got, Villains of All Nations by Marcus Redeker. Highly recommend it. So during this time, after these wars, we have the golden age of piracy and specifically 1716 to 1726 saw the peak of pirate activity. In these 10 years, there were over 4,000 pirates roaming the seas and they became a major thorn in the side of these imperial powers who were using this trade system to grow their empires. One captain at the time estimated that pirates did more harm to trade than the combined naval powers of Spain and France during the War of Spanish Succession. Historians back this claim up. During the war, England lost around 2,000 vessels, but captured as much, if not more. But after the war, pirates alone captured or plundered close to 2,500 ships, sinking over 10%, with very little pirate vessels being captured. Bartholomew Roberts' crew captured over 400 vessels alone. Pirates plundered trade ships for the best loot and often sank the remains to the bottom of the sea. But these riches alone could not explain why so many sailors deserted their posts to join pirate ships. The various empires at the time were dead set on exterminating the pirate life. And so many pirates were either captured captured and hanged or killed in conflict within just a year or two of going on the account. So why take the risk? The famous pirate Captain Black Bart Roberts once said, In an honest service there is thin commons, low wages, and hard labor. In this, the pirate life, there is plenty and satiety, pleasure and ease, liberty and power, and who would not balance creditor on this side, when all the hazard that is run for it, at worst, is only a sour look or two at choking. And he means being hanged by that. No. A merry life and a short one shall be my motto. Well done. And, and that's right. It was a better life that many pirates sought. On merchant ships, that honest service that Black Bart refers to, sailors were beaten. They were paid little. They had terrible food. And as many are well acquainted with today in relation to our modern industrial economy, sailors had little health and job security. They could expect to die early after the chronic consequences of a hard life at sea caught up with them. And Daniel's not exaggerating in the least bit here. The King of England once sent two ships out to capture pirates in 1722. One ship left with 240 men, and when it finally came home, it had recorded 280 dead sailors on board. Disease was absolutely rampant among the overworked and undernourished sailors, 
And as we discussed at the beginning of episode 36, Slaves of Progress, ship captains made up for the high turnover by capturing vulnerable young men in port cities and enslaving them on board their vessels. But on pirate ships, life could be better. If even for a short time, sure there was the wealth of plundered ships, but more importantly, what sailors found was a more equal social order. One in which the sick and the injured were actually cared for. Officers were elected, not imposed. The plunder was spread equally between all crew members. The crew collectively voted on their destinations and targets and all worked as comrades in pursuit of common goals and ways of living. Right. And, and this is a big theme of this show is the societies in which pirates organized themselves and how this social order they represented was so contrary to the authoritarian, hierarchical, and violent one in which they came from. In fact, it was so different from what captains and government officials recognized as the only way of doing things that oftentimes when they looked at how people were living aboard pirate ships, they saw it as anarchy and chaos because they couldn't wrap their mind over the idea that people can live in a non totally top-down hierarchical system. And the way that pirate ships were run was literally unfathomable. Yeah, and speaking of a more equal social order in which officers were elected, the famous uh, Captain Blackbeard rose to command a fleet of three vessels and 150 pirates after his mentor and former Captain Benjamin Hornigold was demoted by his own men. Hornigold turned pirate after being employed as a privateer for the British um, but he refused to plunder his former British ship allies. So his own men took a vote, they demoted him, and Hornigold retired to a peaceful life, and Blackbeard took the helm. And speaking about the myths of piracy, despite his infamy and his maybe uh, sinister caricature, apparently Captain Blackbeard never harmed anyone that his crew captured. And to be fair, that's because a lot of pirates employed the Genghis Khan strategy of attack, where as long as you surrendered, they were more than happy to treat you right. They would feed you. They would drop you off someplace if you weren't a horrible person, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But any resistance will be met with equal violence by the pirates. Yeah, sure. And that's what a lot of people point to is that pirates terrify their enemies. But it's also important to point out that the targets of pirate rage were the commercial merchants or the governors who mistreated sailors and who had attacked pirates in the past. Many pirate crews, like you mentioned, voted on, on what their mission was. And so often they chose to go after an, an official because he had hanged a certain number of pirates. And there's tons of stories of crews that capture a vessel. And before they decide what to do with the merchant captain, they line his crew up. And they interview the crew and say, hey, how did your captain treat you? If the crew said he was actually a pretty good captain, he treated us honestly, he didn't beat us, very often they would transport him to a port city and let him go. In some cases, they even returned the ship to the captain as well as some of their supplies and stuff and sent them on their merry way. Right. I think that came back to bite one crew <laughs> in the ass where they <laughs> captured a, a ship. The captain was a kind man to a sailor, so they let him go. And then he ran home and uh, recruited some Navy ships and went back to capture the pirates that had treated him so nicely. But such is the way of life at sea, David. Well, you find this in a lot of even just the way that pirates named their ships. So many of the names of the ships were the something revenge or the revenge of something, because that's what a pirate saw most of what their life was. Remember, they had been pressed into difficult service serving under these merchant captains. 
And at some point, either they had been liberated by a pirate or they had mutinied against these cruel captains, and they saw themselves as sort of agents of vengeance, traveling around the seas and making sure that those who were just were rewarded. In this case, those captains who were good, they would send them off with supplies. In some cases, they would even steal new ships to give to captains where they had accidentally damaged their ships if it was a, quote, honest or good man. But when a captain was bad, when they had mistreated their crews, when they were cruel and unjust, then they would be tortured and ultimately executed in ways that the crew would collectively vote on. So let's expand a little bit on these anti-authoritarian communities that pirates created for themselves. And here's Walter Kennedy, a famous pirate captain who's, who was hanged in 1721, but he was interviewed shortly before his death, and he elaborated on this role of authority on a pirate ship. Quote, they chose a captain from amongst themselves, who in effect held little more than that title excepting in an engagement, when he commanded absolutely and without control. Most of the crew had suffered formerly from the ill-treatment of their officers, provided carefully against any such evil. Now they had the choice in themselves. By their orders they provided, especially against quarrels which might happen amongst themselves, and appointed certain punishments for anything that tended that way. For the due execution thereof, they constituted other officers besides their captain. So very industrious were they to avoid putting too much power into the hands of one man. It might sound contradictory to have a captain who is both in control and has no authority, but that is how these systems would work. Oftentimes, the captain was counterbalanced by a quartermaster who had equal powers but in different areas. One would look out for the other, and then at any point, either could be overruled by the crew or even turned out of their position. Like we mentioned before, where crews would vote their captains down, they would become a regular member of the crew, and someone else would become captain again. This was a common way of running these ships. Everyone had total control over every single moment. It didn't matter if you were a cook. It didn't matter if you were a captain. You would share the responsibility because you were all in the same boat, quite literally. And that's where that phrase comes from. Every man a captain was the idea that they had on these ships. Because they had grown so wary of the abuses of centralized, contained authority, of authority that could be abused, they were extremely careful to create these systems that would prevent that from ever being able to happen. Because they had an understanding that authority itself enables corruption. It's not just that corrupt people end up in power, but the actual, and this is something we've learned today, the actual act of being in charge of others makes changes in your brain, physiologically. It reduces empathy, it makes you more aggressive. In many cases, it makes a brain resemble more a sociopath than a cognitively normal individual. And so having these mechanisms in place where this could be overturned at any point was an important part of pirate culture. And this is something that had happened from both their experiences on these crews with these abusive merchant captains, but also because a lot of these pirates themselves were former revolutionaries or radicals that were exiled from these Western nations during this time of social upheaval, who found themselves carried off to new colonies as a punishment, and then wound up in these maroons, these pirate communities, where they ultimately brought these ideas and created this culture, saying that we want something different. We want to run our lives together without this top-down approach. We want to collectively own our fates. And that was a pirate's life. It's so interesting to me how it kind of solves the authority issue, where if you, you, know, if you say, look, we shouldn't have people who are in charge of our lives, I think the pushback is we do need leadership in certain areas of our life. We do need leadership in organizations. And this is something that the pirates absolutely recognize. They say, yes, we do need a leader in times of a chase. We do need leaders to take the helm during a battle 
so that there isn't as much confusion, so that orders are clear. You know, someone that we can appoint to observe the overall strategy and make decisions. But when that chase is done, when that battle is over, we're all the same. We're all equal. The captain sleeps not in his special quarters, but just like everyone else on the deck, wherever he pleases. He doesn't get any extra food than anyone else. And the spoils of these battles are decided by us based on our contract and based on roles and divvied out by the quartermaster whose role is to disperse that. You mentioned briefly there that the captain would not sleep in the captain's quarters. And this is an actually interesting thing that we saw over and over repeated in these pirate ships um, and was confounding to the merchant captains that were captured and would spend time on these ships. They couldn't understand why this was happening. But on a pirate ship, people would sleep anywhere. They would, they would sleep wherever they wanted. There were no fixed beds. Uh, there was no, this is my bunk. Everyone would sleep wherever was convenient. Oftentimes, the captain itself had no bed to sleep in. They were forced not to sleep in a bed. And this is sort of a way of overcoming the hierarchy that was built into these ships themselves. Because when a ship designer is building a ship, they're used to the way that the military or the merchant class is building a ship. And there's a hierarchy to the way that the quarters on a ship are designed. There's the captain's quarters, there's a larger room for the first mate, there's shared bunks for other people, there's different decks. And a sort of informal social hierarchy is reinforced by the architecture of the ship itself. And pirates, they recognize this fact because they live these lives where this is something that is constantly impressing them, the very ship itself that they spend their entire lives on. And instead of saying, well, you know, this is just the way things are. This is our environment that is encouraging this way of organizing ourselves. We're going to resist this. We're going to ignore the fact that we're supposed to sleep in these bunks. We're going to ignore the fact that there's a captain's quarter. And we're going to make sure that we collectively treat this ship as our home and that every man is equal with where they sleep, how they sleep and who they sleep with, which I guess we'll also get to later. Well, there's a, there's a funny story worth highlighting, which shows how much these captains truly were at the mercy of their crew. There's a captain, a pirate captain named Howell Davis. Uh, he was a daring captain. He only lasted 11 months before being killed. But in that time, he captured a great number of vessels, and he used charm and trickery to pull off some pretty high-profile kidnappings and raids against West African slaving forts. In one instance, he convinced the commander of such a fort that he and his crew were privateers employed by the empire. And when they were welcomed for dinner, Davis took the commander hostage and plundered 2,000 pounds of gold bars and then dismantled the castle's guns and other defenses. And, and I was curious, David, how much this might be worth today or, or you know, as best we can back the napkin, calculate the value of this gold to these pirates if it were today. So right now, the price of gold is about $1,200 per ounce, give or take. Um, I'm sure tomorrow it'll be radically different, but 2,000 pounds of gold bars, which is about 29,000 troy ounces, multiplied by $1,200, that's $34 million worth of gold in today's value. Nice. Nice. <laughs> And he pulled off a number of raids like this. But despite his bravado, even Howell Davis could not pull one over his crew. One night, he and two other pirate captains that he had allied himself with decided to go have some fun ashore at Sierra Leone to visit the local brothel. But they didn't want to go in looking like a bunch of pirate scrubs, David. They decided to look their best. So uh, wanting to look good for these prostitutes, they stole some fine clothing from the common chest. Uh Technically, they borrowed it without permission. Such is the pirate way, right? 
But um, when they came back to the ship, the crew found out what they had done. They ripped the clothing off them. They chastised the captains. And they reminded them that it was the quartermaster who determined how goods were distributed and that these clothes in particular were to be auctioned among the crew. And I, I just think that's really funny that you know you were talking about the hierarchical structures of merchant and Navy ships today, where we use titles and uniforms. I mean, we do that so much in our society, but we use these things to symbolize one's authority over another. Junior, senior, vice president of marketing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But these pirates were like, oh, oh, you want to wear the fancy waistcoat? Well, we don't care if you are the captain. You're going to bid on it just like everyone else. And if I outbid you, I wear the fancy waistcoat. But you might say, well, a pirate captain is obviously going to have more money than his crew to bid on these clothes whenever that auction comes up. But it's not as much as you think. In fact, for most pirate crews, it was very common for everyone to get an equal share of whatever bounties that they would gather. So every man would get one share, except the captain and the quartermaster, who would get more. And how much more do you think a captain would get than a regular crewman? You know, well, I mean, look at a, say, business today, Daniel, how much more does a CEO make than a regular employee? Like 52 times more. Like something. a million times more, whatever it is. <laughs> Um, so, so on a pirate ship, these villains of history who are so infamous for their endless greed and pillaging and stuff, well, how much more is a captain going to make than the crew members? If it be me, Davy, and I be the captain of this here ship, I say uh, a fair double coin should be good for me. Well, that's right on the money. Oh, really? <laughs> Most of these captains were making just one and a half or two times what a regular sailor on the ship would make. Uh, officers, because of their extra knowledge in carpentry or gunsmithing or whatever it is, would make one and a half to 1.25 more. And ultimately, that's not that much more for all the extra responsibility and work that a captain or officer might take on, the longer watches and things. But that's what these people considered were fair. And can you imagine if that was the case that we had today in a business where the CEO or the owner of the company or whatever it is just makes double what everyone else in the company makes? People would lose their minds. But this was yeah. common on pirate ships. This is how they functioned. But it really ties in well to that idea of perceived ownership and that every person on the ship is a captain. And you actually found some recorded articles that various pirate crews had that actually laid out all this in writing. And we can come back to that shortly. But why don't we explore a little bit more, David, some of the economic and political realities at this time in the 18th century that led to pirates in the first place? We kind of briefly touched on this, but we can expand a bit. Well, sure, Daniel. As I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, there was a lot of war and conflict going on at the time. And of course, in this world of trade, the sailor was perhaps the most important cog that linked together the dominant forces of the economy, politics, and that unceasing war, which together formed the backdrop of the sailor's whole world. The sailor was caught between a constant struggle between the dominant powers of the world, Span, Span, Frank, Span, Span. <laughs> We're getting lots of booty in Span, baby. Spain, France, England, Portugal, and the Netherlands, once religious war had largely demarcated the land of these various empires, they turned their attention to trade war, each vying for control over commodities like gold, slaves, and sugar, which flowed from the colonies. The accumulation of wealth at the heart of these empires required mass dispossession of people everywhere. And as a result, the Atlantic economy was absolutely brutal. Right. So much was going on that negatively impacted so many people, not just these sailors, but Land enclosures at home, which forced people off their land and into either low-wage work in cities 
turning these raw spoils of colonial extraction into their final manufactured products, or or perhaps they were led into indentured servitude in the far-flung colonies themselves. Sugar plantations, gold mines, and other sites of extraction required the mobilization of millions of slaves stolen from native lands and required the extermination of natives for the conversion of their land into one fit for economic production. And all these dispossessed people offered a ready pool of cheap labor for employ under ship captains, especially entering this era of piracy after 1716. And what all these people had in common was the violence with which these various empires that you mentioned used to maintain the social order, all so that this trade could be carried out on large scale. But even amidst this reality, the sailor could see that these empires did not have as tight a grip on the vast Atlantic trade system as they would have liked. And those sailors who had become emboldened by their experience resisting vicious merchant captains found they could escape the system altogether as a pirate. These struggles actually, in some ways, laid the groundwork for modern labor movements that we have today and that we've benefited from as workers and laborers across the world. As we mentioned, work was brutal among these merchant vessels. In many cases, sailors were forced into it by being kidnapped. They were beaten, starved. uh, They were fraught with disease. So they found a number of ways to fight back. Those that could work together found use in work stoppages, mutinies against captains, and outright desertion. Or ghosting, as we like to call it today. (laughs) But most interestingly, David, is that you know, sailors actually invented the strike, that thing that people do now where they have signs and, and they walk around a circle saying strike. Well, if you've never thought about where that word actually comes from, we first see it in 1768 when the word first appears and it described the action of physically dismantling the top sails on ships so that they couldn't function. Striking the sails, quite literally. Exactly. And, and leading up to the first strike, Sailors and land laborers such as coal heavers both engaged in work stoppages regularly to demand wage raises. But in 1768, sailors in northern England and then these coal heavers further down the coast realized that they could get a faster response to their demands by simply striking the sails of ships in port and thus preventing them from leaving. And this goes back to that realization that these sailors had that All these networks, all this wealth that was traveling around the world, the systems of trade that enabled all this, they don't function when the ships themselves don't work and the ships themselves don't work when the sailors don't work. And this realization that the power of running these economies that enable all these abuses rested in the hands of the sailors was a very important moment in the realization of how labor can seize the power that they have. And this is something that echoes through today. And unfortunately, we've lost some of the ability of. But I mean, Daniel, it, today, if all the truck drivers decided they were no longer going to drive their trucks until some whatever it was was met, then this country would shut down. And this has actually happened recently in Brazil. It, it's happened in other nations. And we are still so dependent on these transportation and trade networks and the labor that drives these. And, and maybe that's why Amazon is trying to get these drone deliveries working <laughs> so, so quickly. When that point about truck drivers makes it so clear, this concept we talked about in episode 37, logistics of slavery, of how modern logistics and these trade routes that we've built to fuel the global economy is so important at this point that anything that gets in the way of that at this point is is seen as like a national security threat. And we talked about those strikers in California uh, a decade or so ago who simply went on strike. And the U.S. president at the time declared like a state of emergency, deployed the military 
from the perspective that these strikers were terrorists simply because they were demanding higher wages. But in so doing, they interrupted that flow of goods. Important lessons there, but I think we're getting away from pirates. (laughs) Well, again, David, why become a pirate? Why don't we talk a bit about some of the perks of being a pirate? Um, Some of the benefits you might enjoy by going on the account. That's a great point, Daniel, and something that we really need to drive home. Because yeah, these sailors were being more or less tortured on these ships and stuff, but what makes them risk their life, their livelihood, and take up a life that they know is probably going to end in their death or imprisonment in just a few years? What are the perks that drive somebody to doing that instead of just saying, ah, I'm done with sailing, I'm going to go work on a farm somewhere? Well, you know, a lot of it has to do with escaping that backbreaking work that we mentioned and entering into a, an egalitarian society. You know, at the time, a 250 ton merchant vessel would have employed less than 20 men, whereas a pirate crew would outfit the same ship to accommodate up to 90, meaning less work to go around while enjoying better company. But perhaps, David, for some people, it was as simple as the food and drink. And This might have been a bit of an overcorrection among pirates, but uh, after being worked to the bone on ships with no food and drink, you know, maybe we shouldn't be surprised that the stereotype of the drunken pirate is actually pretty spot on. Yeah, this is something that history did get right. Yeah, they love to eat, drink, and be merry. And this was fully weaved into their social order. Not only did many crews conduct business over a gratuitous bowl of punch, but some pirates could even be suspected of conspiracy. Simply for being sober. It's like, what are you doing being sober there? Are you planning something? There are a bunch of funny stories from captured sailors or captains who were invited to eat and drink with the pirates, but were like, oh no, you know, I'm feeling bad. My ship just got captured. I'm a prisoner. I, I'm not going to join in. And the pirates are like, okay. And they're like partying around and they're like, hey, cheer up, you know, have some alcohol, have some food. And, the, and these captains are like, no, I'm not feeling it. You keep doing it. And the pirates are like, whatever. And, and the words that these captains used to describe the crews quite literally constantly was merry. They couldn't believe how merry these people were, how much they enjoyed imbibing all this food and drink and being friends with each other and all the hijinks that would ensue on the ships. But many times, unfortunately, all these people, this sense of adventure and all this alcohol got together and made things on these ships uh, occasionally a little chaotic. A fist fight would turn into a brawl that might take over a ship or in some cases, uh, things would get completely out of hand. Well, I mean, look how much drinking was uh, woven into this. So um, here are some articles from Captain Bartholomew Roberts' ship that the crew had come up with. The very first one, every man has a vote in affairs of moment, has equal title to the fresh provisions or strong liquors. And here's number, uh, here's article number four, David. The lights and candles to be put out at eight o'clock at night. If any of the crew after that hour still remained inclined for drinking, they were to do it on the open deck. So, I mean, drinking was so common that it was uh, it found its way into the articles and described the rules for it. And as good as the drinking was for morale, it wasn't always ideal for job readiness, right? Pirate captain Black Sam and his crew, for example, got so drunk one time that they ran their ship aground. But it wasn't just drink, Daniel. In addition, pirates provided for the health and safety of their members. A portion of all booty went into a common fund that was used to compensate any pirate that was sick or injured. We're talking about early universal healthcare right here, Daniel. Pirates did it first, David. The camaraderie cannot be understated. 
One of Blackbeard's most infamous exploits was the interruption of trade in 1718 when he blockaded the Charleston, North Carolina harbor and looted several ships for the sole purpose of procuring medicine for his crew. And while commercial sailors could be expected to a miserable fate once they became sick or injured, pirate crews maintained their own social security system, under which a portion of this money was always set aside and used to take care of those who were injured. You can actually see these in some of the pirate codes and articles that were basically contracts that everyone would agree to and collectively sign every time you would leave port. So this was something that an entire crew would come together, write down, and agree to. And in some of these, they were encoded the protection of these rights. Again, here's from Bartholomew Roberts' articles, number nine. No man to talk of breaking up their way of living till each had shared 1,000 pounds. If in order to do this, any man should lose a limb or become a cripple in their service, he was to have $800 out of the public stock and for lesser hurts proportionately. So there you go. Public payouts encoded in what is basically the constitution of a ship collectively decided upon by the crew members in order to make sure that even those who were injured were protected. And, and even beyond the injuries themselves, there was no discrimination against those who were injured in the line of service. I mean, we all have this very specific image of the pirate who's missing an eye and has a peg leg and the hook for hand. This didn't exist in the Royal Navy or in the merchant ships where it, once you were injured or lost a limb or something, that's it. You weren't able to serve anymore because they wanted able-bodied men, that phrase. But on a pirate ship, if you lost an eye or an arm or a leg or whatever, not only would you be compensated for that loss, but you were still able to serve. You were able to do your work as long as by the end of the day, uh, you weren't getting in the ways of others. You were still part of that crew and they would still work with you and protect you. And you could even at that point make it up to captain. And that happened many times. Sorry to change the subject on you, David, but I was just looking at some more of these articles. And um, I think this is really interesting. Even though pirate crews were generally almost entirely made up of men, they had rules for how to interact with women. And here's from Captain John Phillips articles, number nine. If at any time you meet with a prudent woman, that man that offers to meddle with her without her consent shall suffer present death. So, I mean, I think it's really interesting how, again, going back to the depiction of pirates as being violent, being coming to your villages to rape your women, yet they had these rules to guard against any unnecessary violence. They truly did direct their attention towards the injustices of the commercial class and the authorities that oppressed them. But another benefit of becoming a pirate, David, was simply the freedom to leave. Pirate crews were always undergoing change. Every time a new vessel was captured, it became necessary for the crew on the original vessel to split in some way. Those who wished to leave would draw up a new constitution, elect a new captain, and be on their way. And this is a pretty remarkable thing compared to the sailor's previous life, trapped in the service of some merchant ship captain with no prayer of ever leaving. If you were a pirate, though, and you were unhappy with your current captain, you had the freedom and the opportunity to form your own crew, take a vote, and leave. And what's particularly interesting about that is most pirate crews could trace their lineage from a long line of pirate captains, creating this vast network of shared customs and traditions. <clears throat> pirate genealogy is the coolest form of genealogy. That's one you won't find in any DNA test, David. It's, it's a spirit we can all share. You don't have to have pirate genes. You just have to have a pirate's uh, perspective. And that's something that we, we hope everyone's going to gather from this, from this show. <laughs> but it wasn't just fun and games all the time. Of course, pirates would find themselves in battle or in conflicts. And so courage was a quality that carried a ton of weight among pirates. Captains who acted cowardly 
were often immediately stripped of their titles. Those crew members who were brave enjoyed their first choice of loot, and in general, pirates were expected to live every aspect of their life courageously. Bravery was the most valuable personal currency to possess, and those who had it were accepted as one of the crew, regardless of where they came from, or even if they were a woman. I know I just said that uh, pirate crews were almost entirely men, but there were exceptions to this, and this is where this courage quality comes into play. There were two women um, that Captain Johnson and his General History of Pirates, this is the 1700s book that really brought pirates into the public consciousness. Well, in this book, he recounts the history of two famous women pirates who both were born illegitimately. They learned how to disguise their gender. They both escaped this life that was imposed on them and eventually made their way into the pirate's life, found their way on the exact same ship. And in one case, there was a uh, one of these women fell in love or one of the other pirates, male pirates, fell in love with her. They formed a relationship and this ship came under fire and there was this battle and every other pirate except this woman, the other woman and one other pirate, they all escaped down to the bottom of the deck of the ship to escape the battle in this act of cowardice. But the two women stayed on the deck to fight. And eventually this ship was captured and those that had fled found their way to the gallows. And one of the men that was about to be hanged was the lover of this female pirate. And I guess he looked at her for help and she looks up at him and she says, I'm sorry to see you there, uh, but if you had fought like a man, maybe you wouldn't be hanged like a dog. And I guess she oh, <laughs> went, wow. went about her way. So That is a badass bitch. Yeah, it just goes to show if you've got the courage, uh, you have what it takes to become a pirate and you earn the respect of your crew regardless of where you came from. We've mentioned that pirates come from the sailor class who developed maritime skill sets and knowledge from a life at sea and whose motivation came from a desire to escape and fight against the forces of oppression that surround them. But these factors alone are not enough to explain how such a vibrant and well-organized pirate community came about. It's not good enough to assume that the golden age of piracy simply sprang up spontaneously for a few decades and then disappeared. Rather, these pirates emerged from and were supported by a much deeper undercurrent of resistance, a long cultural evolution of outcasts, of maroon communities, of fishermen, tavern workers, slaves, coal heavers, labor disputers, and more. The communities and traditions that were built up and blended by a diversity of people mixing and resisting oppression along an international system of trade is what gave birth to the pirate, and their songs, customs, and experiences were all carried over from the cultures in which they were raised. These were people from every walk of life, from every nation, of every skin color, of every sexual orientation, and of the world. And their traditions of resistance were carried from all those places and ways of living, and it echoed through the communities that they lived within. For example, uh, infamous pirate captain Walter Kennedy was an Irishman born in 1695 London to an anchorsmith. His apprenticeship under his father got him acquainted with the comings and goings of life in a sailor port city, and his time as a pickpocket and house burglar got him acquainted with life outside the law. After his father died, he took to life at sea aboard an English man-of-war ship, but it was the stories he heard below deck from his fellow sailors, stories of pirate exploits and of maroon communities established on islands, that inspired him to conspire with his comrades to steal a small vessel himself and become pirate. But a better example of how established communities and traditions carried over to the pirate way of life might be the loggers off the coast 
of the Yucatan Peninsula. These loggers who lived and worked in the swamps established for themselves their own governments. They shared their resources with each other equally and without discrimination. They outlawed violent punishment, and they were merry with drink. Sounds a lot like a pirate to me. (laughs) And these communities sold their lumber to Jamaican traders. And it was not until the Spanish government attacked these communities that many of them turned pirate. And it's easy to see how the knowledge and traditions built up through these communities laid the necessary groundwork for successful pirate crews. And the songs and traditions that passed from one crew to another is what enabled a consistent pirate tradition to preserve itself to all four corners of the sea. Here's a quote once more from Marcus Redeker. From antiquity onward, piracy always depended on a particular set of material circumstance to emerge and flourish. The most essential precondition through the ages has been the existence of trade, in which valuable commodities are transported by sea to remote, poorly defended regions populated by poor people. These poor people in turn had to have access to seagoing craft, which were usually smaller, lighter, faster, and more maneuverable than the heavy laden vessels they chased and sought to capture. Pirates had to have the skills to handle their craft exceptionally well, underlining the old adage that the pick of all seamen were pirates. They had expert local knowledge of winds and waters, shoals and coastlines, sea lanes and shipping patterns. They had places to lurk and hide near the main routes of trade and communities of people to support them. In addition, these small islands abounded with provisions, water and food, turtle, sea fowl, shellfish, and fish. And there were, at least in the early period under consideration, always people who were willing to support pirates. Merchants willing to buy and sell their booty. Pirates continually found favors and encouragers even in Jamaica after the sugar planters consolidated with their ruthless power. The coexistence of these conditions is the major reason the explosion of piracy was not only likely, but predictable after the war of Spanish succession. So in short, most pirates came from poor social classes, and they were well acquainted with life at sea. They had vast local knowledge and social networks, and they had little to lose and much to gain by going on the account. And again, you know, relating this back to the uh, misrepresentation of, of pirates, We've come across a number of articles that describe pirates as criminals. Why did they turn to such a bad life? But in being enemies of the authorities of their day, pirates were not enemies of local communities. In fact, without the tacit support of land-based communities in regions in which pirates operated, they likely would not have been as successful as they were. There was a crew of pirates in 1718, for instance, that said, without the New England merchants providing their crew with ammunition and food, they, quote, could never have become so formidable, nor arrived to that degree that they have. And other support that these pirates received from towns included information on the merchant and royal ships that came and went, helping them keep track of the movement of authorities and merchant captains. Okay, David, Davy boy, we've been talking about pirates in the 18th century. And part of doing this show is, is trying to challenge these caricatures of pirates in the modern day. And if we can maybe relate their position in history to maybe some of the pirates of the modern era. It's not an apples to apples comparison, but... By any means. Right. But I think there are some similarities we can draw, some parallels uh, and whatnot. So why don't we fast forward to today? 
and and just talk about some of the responses to maritime piracy and, and other concepts we might take away. Now, before we start with modern piracy, Daniel, we definitely don't want to romanticize the current trends of piracy around the world. And we absolutely don't want to generalize or make the same blanket generalization that modern pirates are just like these pirates of the 17th and 18th centuries. Well, for one, David, uh, uh, eye patches have gotten a little bit more sophisticated. We don't use wooden peg legs anymore, but that's true. You know, we have these carbon fiber prosthetics. So we have bionic pirates. Exactly. Uh, Well, I mean, today the modern pirate is maybe still a symptom of these larger oppressive forces. That does not mean that they themselves cannot also be oppressive or destructive in their own ways. And while it seems many pirates of old were motivated primarily by revenge against those merchant captains who exploited and brutalized them, we might speculate that the motivations behind modern piracy are more directly political and economic in nature, as the maritime aspect of international trade is much less labor-dependent. Definitely. If you just look at the modern cargo ship, um, large enough to carry over 540-foot containers, yet only employ like just a handful of workers, it's definitely a much different labor situation, to say the least, if we're thinking of pirates purely in this like maritime environment. Mm-hmm. Well, in addition, we also don't have any research whatsoever on what community among pirates in Asia, the Caribbean, Western Africa, and other regions might compare to the social dynamics that we've been talking about throughout this episode. And in part, that's because the research on this, as far as we can tell, just quite honestly doesn't exist anywhere. Uh, Almost everything that talks about modern piracies are either international states reacting to some sort of violence against against citizens of their nation uh, and and talking about how they're going to react to that, to local countries who are trying to battle piracy off their coast, or to these large think tanks who are talking about ways that we can combat or lessen piracy. And there's there's very little cultural conversations. And I, I guess what we do get are things like Captain Phillips, which is whatever the fuck that is. What is Captain? Oh, that's that Somali thing? You are the captain. Wait, I am the captain now. It may be out there, David, but maybe this is something we can spend more time on, do some more pirate shows. This is a pirate podcast now. Look, if, if anyone wants us to do more pirate shows, uh, I just actually bought two pirate books. So this is something I would love to delve more into, You know, have some fun with. Maybe we can do some more episodes on. But you're absolutely right. We don't want to generalize and make blanket comparisons. And you mentioned that we don't understand much of the social dynamics of modern piracy. But we do know that there are many pirate activities that are highly complex that act through coordination between multiple vessels, as well as groups on land, which no doubt requires some kind of community support, right? Here's from a report by Oceans Beyond Piracy, quote, hijacking for cargo theft is the most complex piracy model requiring a coordinated effort and often the complicity of a variety of actors. Ships carrying petroleum products are targeted and attacked. Once the vessel is hijacked, the crew is often forced to navigate to a remote location where parts of the cargo are transferred to another ship or a storage facility on land. The stolen cargo is then sold on the black market or blended with legitimate refined products. So let's talk about the why that modern piracy has sort of exploded in the past few years for just a moment here. And this is not the first time that we've discussed this topic on this show. We talked about this fairly extensively in episode 37, Logistics of Slavery. Right, where we talked about the Somali pirates and how the governments of the world labeled them as pirates, as terrorists, and... We had these huge media campaigns about why we need to send our militaries in and liberate these these backwards savages and rescue our cruise ships that these 
brown pirates are terrorizing and, and murdering, right? But in many cases, these so-called pirates, as we've labeled them, are operating with what they see as the official sanction of the state of Somalia or with the support of the local communities and stuff. And European or Asian fishing fleets or vessels that are coming in are seen as the actual pirates to the residents of these areas. But uh, let's start this off with the big quote by Johan Hari here, writing in 2009. In 1991, the government of Somalia collapsed. Its 9 million people have been teetering on starvation ever since, and the ugliest forces in the Western world have seen this as a great opportunity to steal the country's food supply and dump our nuclear waste in their seas. As soon as the government was gone, mysterious European ships started appearing off the coast of Somalia, dumping vast barrels into the ocean. The coastal population began to sicken. At first, they suffered strange rashes, nausea, and malformed babies. Then after the 2005 tsunami, hundreds of the dumped and leaking barrels washed up on shore. People began to suffer from radiation sickness, and more than 300 people died. At the same time, other European ships have been looting Somalia's seas of their greatest resource, seafood. We have destroyed our own fish stocks by overexploitation, and now we have moved on to theirs. More than $300 million worth of tuna, shrimp, and lobster are being stolen every year by these illegal trawlers. The local fishermen are now starving. Mohammed Hussein, a fisherman in the town of Marka, 100 kilometers south of Mogadishu, told Reuters, if nothing is done, there soon won't be much fish left in our coastal waters. This is the context in which these pirates have emerged. And he's writing about overfishing in 2009. If you want an updated uh, snapshot of overfishing today, check out episode 42, No Catch. But piracy off the Horn of Africa has received the most media attention, but it's not occurring just there. So here are some modern trends in piracy as outlined by Oceans Beyond Piracy. Piracy has increased 160% around Latin America and the Caribbean from 2016 to 2017. And although incidents of piracy worldwide have declined slightly, the activities of those Somali pirates have continued to expand. Between 2016 and 2017, those incidents have increased 200%. And these have had direct economic impacts on international trade. In 2017, the cost of piracy, either directly through stolen goods or indirectly from the cost of security and prevention measures, was $820 million around West Africa and $1.4 billion around East Africa. But we're not going to spend too much more time on this episode going into modern piracy. You mentioned, David, that it's hard to make blanket comparisons between modern piracy and that that occurred during the golden age of piracy. But it is interesting when you compare the statements that are made by modern anti-piracy groups when compared to the officials of the day during the golden age of piracy who were equally opposed to pirates at that time. So let's play a game with this, Daniel. Okay. I'm going to be modern day oceans beyond piracy and other anti-piracy advocacy groups and think tanks and stuff. And you're going to be golden age pirate officials and governors and whatever. Uh, And we're going to go back and forth reading the today take, which is me. And then for you, the take of the 1700s. Arr, David, you you make a nice proposition. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> let's 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 go pirate boy okay so today the oceans beyond piracy group the root cause of piracy is always related to conflict political insecurity and the economic situation on land for the most part patterns in piracy are reoccurring 
often dating back decades or even centuries. And here's Cotton Mather, a famous minister in colonial America who participated in the persecution and hanging of many pirates in 1700s Boston, calling infamous pirate William Fly, quote, a most uncommon and amazing instance of impenitency and stupidity. Yet he also recognized the role that ship captains played in motivating seamen to go on the pirate life. During one hanging of pirates, Mather told the commercial captains and merchants in the crowd to avoid being, quote, too like the devil in your barbarous usage of the men that are under you and lay them under temptation to do desperate things, end quote. Today, much of the talk about pirates is focused on the fact that they threaten property. So here's a quote. Today, more than 50,000 merchant ships transport more than 80% of global cargo trade to ports all over the world. These seamen and ships run a gauntlet of threats to reach their destinations. Threats such as terrorism, local conflict, and piracy. Here's Marcus Redeker writing about the golden age of piracy. Quote, piracy was, first and foremost, a crime against property. More specifically, in almost every instance, the property of merchants. And interesting about that, David, as we discussed in Logistics of Slavery, is that today, protecting the logistics infrastructure that spans the world is the highest priority of government national security interests. Like I mentioned earlier, that California strike. But similarly, in the 1700s, English law made it a treasonous offense to interrupt trade, since shipping was a quoted interest of the king's government. Well, just like then, today it is very obvious what side these international anti-piracy groups are on when they make comments like this. The occurrence of piracy is often linked to the fishing industry. Illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing devastates this sector in several countries, which leads to financial strain. Unemployed fishermen are also often recruited into piracy. Now, this really stands out to me because the stance is that individuals and pirate crews are the problem of unregulated fishing causing financial strain along these coastal populations, while also recognizing that unemployed individuals facing their own economic stress are those most likely to join these dangerous pirate crews. Yet, there is no recognition of those industrial fleets that we talked about in episode 42, No Catch, who park their trawlers right off the coast of these poor countries, extract the fish while causing the collapse of these marine ecosystems that systematically drives up the price of fish locally, puts thousands or millions of people out of their jobs and livelihoods. If these anti-piracy groups were actually interested in ending this piracy that they advocate against, they would address those systemic causes of piracy in the first place which they themselves recognize, but that would mean opposing the industrial ships and economic activity causing the harm to these local people. But to close up this section, Daniel, pirates are a major threat. So today, people say that pirates are a major threat that requires concerted efforts among world governments and business leaders to combat. Here's another quote from that study. The problem of piracy is a global issue, which requires collaborative efforts to reduce the impact this crime has on our industry. Piracy has not gone away, and the challenges for governments, industry, and military partners continue. Utilizing the information in this annual report backs up the need for the wider implementation of security measures, better maritime situational awareness, and the importance of constant communication with our military forces at sea. Piracy can be offset by security measures, but in the long run, denying safe havens to pirates by building capability of local security forces on land as well as local support for these programs and the successful prosecuting of pirates are essential in defeating piracy. 
And in 1717, once again, Cotton Mathers addressed a group of pirates about to be hanged, and he said, quote, All nations agree to treat your tribe as the common enemies of mankind and to extricate you out of this world. So even while the world powers of the day competed and warred with each other, they were united in their goals of eradicating piracy, which threatened their property. And I really want to emphasize the word extricate there, Daniel, because extricate is such a potent and powerful word. It means quite literally, pull out a weed by the roots and all so there is nothing left. Well, this, this reminds me of something I hear a lot. And I was listening to Jocko Willink's Navy SEAL leadership podcast the other day. Uh, don't shame me. I have some... Too late. <laughs> but anyway, he was discussing evil in the world, David, and how the U.S. military is this force of good, which is fighting hard to rid the world of evil. And he went off on this concept of evil and darkness, arguing that we all need to accept the reality that evil is out there, darkness is growing, and that we have to fight back against this evil by expanding the strength and presence of our military around the world. And the idea is that the various people around the world who are committing violence against others, acting out against the law, well, the idea is that these people are just plain evil. Never mind the systemic causes of people's actions. From this Navy SEAL's perspective, the people who resist U.S. occupied forces in their own country are just plain evil and deserve to die. Never mind what we may have done to destroy their way of life. Never mind the toxic waste we're dumping on their beaches or the fish we're illegally smuggling out of their waters. Going back to what Redeker writes in his book, quote, pirates attempted to intervene against and modify the standard brutalities that marked the social relations of production and merchant shipping. That they sometimes chose to do so with brutalities of their own shows how they could not escape the system of which they were a part, end quote. And I think that last point is worth reflecting on that we have built an inherently violent world, even if, or especially if, much of that violence is silent. A community on the other side of the world who watches their entire livelihood dry up as commercial ships take off with their only source of food are the victims of violence, even if no gun was ever fired. People around the world who are forced into wage slavery, working 10-hour shifts under dangerous conditions and in fear of being physically and forcibly removed from their home if they cannot afford to pay their overpriced rent, these people are victims of violence. We have built a violent world, and the fact that those who resist this may employ violence themselves might just speak more to the brutality that they endure rather than the nature of their hearts and souls. Here's Virginia Governor Alexander Spotswood, the man who killed the famous Captain Blackbeard, writing to the English crown in 1724. Quote, Your lordships will easily conceive my meaning when you reflect on the vigorous part I've acted to suppress pirates. And if those barbarous wretches can be moved to cut off the nose and ears of a master for but correcting their own sailors, what inhuman treatment must I expect? Should I fall within their power? I who have been marked as the principal object of their vengeance for cutting off their arch pirate Blackbeard with all his grand designs, and making so many of their fraternity to swing in the open air of Virginia. End quote. So how does the language he uses, calling pirates of his day 
barbarous wretches. Compare with the language we use to refer to those our governments have declared war on. Listen to the way he describes a sailor's place in this world, that they belong under masters, and that when those masters abuse them, they are merely correcting them, and that if a sailor should be so bold as to resist this correcting, we should consider this an inhuman reaction. But today, are we so different? When we call people criminals for breaking laws that were meant to correct them, when we call people thugs for developing their own social orders outside the ones we try to impose on them, if we find any part of the pirate life endearing or impressive or admirable or inspiring, we should remember that during their zenith, they were considered barbarous wretches by the governments that opposed them. Maybe we should reflect if there isn't any irony in idolizing the pirates of yesterday and siding with their enemies of today. When reading about pirates and what ultimately inspired this episode, I feel almost like a child again. There's something wonderful about these stories that I hear, the adventures of the audacity that someone had to have to be abused in this life and instead take their life into their own hands. To step outside these worlds that were made and built and encouraged to impress these people and be free. To stand on this ship and be your own man, to be your own captain. Not just on the ship, but in their lives and in the world that they lived and had only known as an impressive, brutal world before this moment. There's a romance to this. These stories are very akin to what we know in the stories of Robin Hood and his merry men. These pirates were out there seeking revenge against the wrongs that were committed upon them by these people who were out there only to profit off their labor. And these stories, even when they've been turned into propaganda, focused on the violence and made-up atrocities that these pirates were allegedly committing across the seas against governments, individuals, the innocent, even with these stories, with these centuries of propaganda at this point, there is still a romance there. We still idolize these ideas of the pirate's life in our movies, in our media, in books, even in amusement park attractions. And that's because there's something there. There's something that speaks to a very low base level of what we all want, of a freedom that we all crave, that we wish we would have, of something that's been denied from us because the world that won, the world of these nations, the world of these governors, of these oppressive merchant captains is the world that instead we live in. Instead of these worlds of equality and egalitarian ideas, where everyone shares in their responsibility to each other. We live in this world that these pirates reacted against. And when we read their stories, and we identify with their struggles, and we find ourselves lost in a daydream, imagining what it would have been like to live that free life, we know for a second that we've lost something. And in many cases, it's something that we've never even had, but we still lost it, because we can feel our craving for that life. Right now, we're at an interesting point in the culture of our human civilization. With the many things that we're talking about in this show, these systemic issues that are all bubbling up, we live in interesting times. This is a tipping point, and there are so many futures available to us right now, and unfortunately, so many tragic futures. If we continue down the path that we've been continuing down for these hundreds of years since this golden age of piracy and, and before, and if we don't step out and find our own independent and free future, then we're doomed. And so this is why we're looking at these inspiring tales. Because these are examples of things that worked. And though they were eventually shut down, they were eventually captured and hanged, during their brief lives, they lived free and happy, and they knew what they were getting into. And there's an inspiration there. And so our struggles today may not end up in our own satisfaction. It might not end in our own freedom. But we are paving the way for those who will come after us, who can build off the work that we're starting right now, just like those who came before us, that we are building upon theirs. And it's a world to a better future. It's a world 
to where people can live free like this and not have to step outside this society and find freedom that way. But it is there when they are born, and it is something that they protect throughout their life because of all of us who came before them fighting for it and sacrificing so much, just like these pirates did centuries ago. And though their culture may have died in modern piracy, their spirit still exists in our culture today. And though their ideas have been mixed up and muddled and compromised and twisted away from their original spirit, by looking back at the actual history that was there, we can recover this culture and we can distill it in all the things that we do and rebuild this world that the pirates briefly had. And that sounds like a world that I want to live in. I also felt a little bit like a child reading about pirates, David. Um, and learning about the pirate life really made an impression on me. And I, I think there are so many things we can learn from pirates that can help inform how to live today. You know, here on Ashes, Ashes, and more broadly, uh, there's a lot of talk about what is wrong in the world. And, you know, we're very interested in educating people on what not to do. Don't oppress people. Don't destroy the environment. Don't build empires of wealth accumulation by extracting individuals out of tightly bound communities that you can then turn into slaves. So we're good at telling people what not to do, but what we're not so great at, and this has become an opportunity for those in these self-help realms to infuse these types of world-dominating ideologies with their messages. What we are not so great at is instructing people how to live. And for that, I look in part to these pirates. We live in a world today where it is easy to become discouraged at the massive forces that shape our lives, whether those forces are environmental, political, or economic. And life for pirates in the Atlantic and Indian Oceans during the late 17th and 18th century were similar. They lived at a time in which great imperial powers spanned the earth and the coasts, the indigenous, the towns, the farmers, everyone was being gobbled up and integrated into this great giant machine. But some looked around them and noticed that this great machine was expensive to maintain. It couldn't be policed 24-7 and in every location. There were gaps. There were holes. So they banded together, and they used their collective knowledge of local waters, coastal inlets, to step outside the system and into those gaps. They built communities of mutual support and common goals. They made survival their principal aim. Our world may be more destructive and in greater disrepair, but are we in so different a situation now? Our great empires are dying. Our ships are sinking. Mass surveillance, incarceration, conflicts and wars, all of these get ratcheted up as the profits from declining resources strain national budgets, and our governments have to work harder and harder to plug the holes through which these costs start gushing in. The tighter grip our empires seek to enclose the world in betrays, however, a smaller hand. There are gaps and holes in our current world. We cannot let the fear of such concepts of security theater that we discussed in episode 51, Eyes on Me, convince us that we are outmatched. We can use our local knowledge, our love for each other, to build communities in the gaps of our empires. As Anna Singh says, which we quoted in episode 50, quote, in a global state of precarity, we don't have choices other than looking for life in this ruin. Our first step is to bring back curiosity. Unencumbered by the simplifications of progress narratives, the knots and pulses of patchiness are there to explore, end quote. 
And in these patchy gaps, we can look for opportunities to form our communities and go forward towards a better world. But I suppose, David, that'd be a lot to think about. But think about it. We hope you are. (laughs) You can read more about pirates with the sources that we've linked on our website, or we highly encourage you to check out Marcus Redeker's book, Villains of All Nations. You can also find a full transcript of this episode on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible, and we will never use ads to support this show. So if you like it, would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review, recommending us to a friend, or supporting us on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash ashesashescast. Get in before January 1st, and you can be a part of that first shipment of stickers. You can also find us on your favorite social media network at Ashes Ashes Cast or on our subreddit at r slash Ashes Ashes Cast. We also have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. We encourage you to send us your thoughts. Next week, it's the new year, and we're going to have an episode looking forward for all the things people are doing to help make this world a better place. We hope you'll tune in for that. But until then, this be Ashes Ashes. Bye-bye, mateys. Bye-bye.